Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, our weekly podcast about everything business and finance. I'm Felix Salmon, the senior editor at Fusion here in New York. And this week's show is a particularly special one because we have an amazing guest panelist. And in his honor, we've constructed a bit of a media theme. I'll try to make this about a little more than just journalists talking about journalism. We're going to talk about Apple's purchase of Beats, Dr. Dre's company with those massive headphones you see on pretty much everybody these days. We're going to talk about Amazon and its brazen bullying of French publisher Hachette. And we'll talk about the most famous French economist in the world, Thomas Piketty, who <laughs> recently had a bit of a run-in with the Financial Times. And as we do every week, we'll wrap up with our numbers lightning round, where each panelist briefly offers an important number from the week. And with us is the amazing Cathy O'Neill, who's the program director of the LEAD program, which is a data journalism program at the Columbia Journalism School, and also a blogger at mathbabe.org, and generally a very smart and awesome person. Hi, Felix. Hi, Cathy. And because Jordan Weissman is traveling this week, we have a pinch hitter from the corner office here at Slate, the chairman, editor-in-chief, and general Grand Poobah, Mr. Jacob Weisberg, debonair, man about town with elegantly tailored suits and a fine taste in vintage burgundy. Jacob. <laughs> Thank you, Felix. It's a short gap from Weissman to Weisberg that we just moved one up the phone book. We, we, we always need someone who begins with a W. And with that, <laughs> we will move swiftly on to topic number one, beats. A headphone company which has an absolutely astonishing market share for this for, for headphones. It seems to have created this the only headphone brand which matters, and as a result, or partly as a result, it has been bought for three billion dollars by Apple, which I think works out to about a week and a half's worth of Apple's profits. <laughs> um, this is one of the most divisive M and A deals I can remember. Everyone either loves it or hates it. Kathy, which side are you on? Um, I, I, you know what? I got. I'm going to admit I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll give you two reasons, and no one's going to like the, my reasons. Um, first of all, I, I'm not a big Steve Jobs fan. I never have been. I don't think that guy was much beyond a really excellent marketer and an even better cult leader. So he was a very strong on control. And I get why people are like, oh, no, he's not in control anymore because he's dead, which is true. Um, but, yeah, that's what happens when a cult leader leaves. And the other thing I want to say is it's, it seems to me a very natural thing to do for them because um, iTunes is built on this model where you buy stuff. And that's my generation. That's our generation. My kids can't even Im imagine buying stuff. They are so used to streaming and getting stuff on, on um, you know, YouTube that the idea for them to just collect their own inventory of music seems strange this, this so is this is the other part of beats they don't just make head, head headphones they also have a music streaming service and apple was quite careful to wait until beats had signed all of the deals for its music streaming service before it bought the company and this i think to me is that is one of the big re stories here the reason why it's happening when it's happening is that as as kathy says Apple did an amazing job of disrupting the bought music market. And they came in and suddenly everyone was buying singles from iTunes instead of albums from the CD store. And now 
people don't buy music anymore. They buy subscriptions from Spotify or Pandora or Beats or someone like that. And Apple doesn't have the same kind of dominance of the streaming music industry as it did of the bought music industry. And the record labels are wise to this. And if Apple had gone up to them and said, hey, we want to do streaming, they would have negotiated a really hard bargain because it's Apple they're up against and they've made that mistake once. And so instead they just let Beats do all of the negotiation and Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine and these cool music types manage to negotiate a good deal and then Apple just swoops in and buys them. Yeah, well, Jimmy Iovine, is that how you say his name? Iovine. Iovine, Yovine. Um, but his, his connection to the music industry may be the most valuable thing Apple bought. I mean, remember, if you go back, the music industry was very suspicious and hostile to Apple and partly because the idea that they were going to sell individual songs for 99 cents each, you know, was going to break up the bundling around around CDs, which they thought could move to digital. You know, they got much more disrupted by streaming and, and, and free models. And now Apple's in the position of having to play catch up because iTunes is very dated, doesn't work terribly well and doesn't isn't a streaming music service. So, you know, if this vaults them into effective competition with Spotify and Pandora, but particularly Spotify, seems to me it's cheap at $3 billion. And $3 billion for Apple, that's like, you know, that's like $0.75 cents in, in new money. <laughs> well, I, mean, I actually, uh, yeah, I yeah. looked that up. Because I, I just want, you know, the, when I think about money in Apple, I think offshore money. So I was like, what? how much of that, you know, is $3.2 billion? Um, and I looked at estimates. There's anywhere between 54 and $100 billion that Apple has offshore, depending on who you believe. So this is like at most one-seventeenth of the money they have lying but around. But they can't I, buy it with offshore money. No, they? but what they can do is they can take the money which otherwise would just be piling up offshore and use right. it to buy beats instead, which is slightly more useful than just having massive cash piles in the Cayman Islands. And the, uh, the other thing which I have mentioned before is that Everyone is getting into this. The, the, the big buzzword of the moment in technology is wearables. And Google seems to think the wearables is really stupid-looking glasses. <laughs> and it turns out that if you actually walk around and you look at what technology are people actually wearing in the real world, the one thing which people are happy to wear in the real world is headphones. People are doing it everywhere and quite unselfconsciously. And this, in a weird way, is a backdoor for a Apple to get into the wearables market, I think. And it's already a very high-margin uh, item, which is, sells very well in Apple stores. In fact, Apple, I gather, has already double-digit percentage of Beats business. So to have this, you know, and there's been, over the years, people, Beats basically exists because the Apple headphones were so cruddy, right? So to have a, a, a stylish, branded high profit margin headphone to sell with iPhones seems like a pretty good fit for that. There are very few consumer goods which have the same kind of profit margins that Apple products have, but Beats headphones are one of them. The reason, however, that the profit margins are so big in both cases, both for Beats and for Apple, is that they have both done an amazing job branding their products. And so this is the big criticism of the deal is that Apple has the single most valuable brand in the world. And the last thing it wants to do is buy a much smaller brand, which will confuse the consumer. And now you have the Apple brand and the Beats brand. Are they the same brand? Are they different brands? You know, is, is this something which Apple should have been more worried about? Well, it gets to the larger problem. I mean, Kathy said she's not that much of an Apple fan. Apple used to be the genius company at generating cool. 
it's no longer generating cool in the same way. It's living off its capital, existing capital of cool. And in this case, it looks like trying to buy some cool. But if you can't grow cool yourself, aren't you better off buying it than just spending down what you've got? Isn't Dr. Dre just living off the cool which he built 25 <laughs> years ago? Well, fair point. I, I, I do think you made a really good point, though, Felix, earlier when you said that they they kept on they've, – they've been on the record saying – Apple has – saying, well, yeah, we could have done this ourselves, but we decided to, to um, just to buy it. And you made the point that it would have been a very different – like business transaction if they had been doing it themselves, being Apple and being such a big player with the music industry. So I think in some sense, you know, and I'm not having sympathy for Apple because I don't really care, as I said, but in some sense, they're, some sense their hands are somewhat tied in terms of how they're going to move into a new space. And they, so they have a limited, a limited set of options. And this is one of them. And they, you know, considering that, I think it's a pretty obvious deal. This is the perfect segue Kathy, you couldn't have oh, teed it up welcome. better for me if, if you tried. On the topic of massive technology companies in trying to negotiate with entrenched interests, Jacob, tell us a bit about uh, Amazon and Hachette. Well, Felix, I came this very morning from uh, the Book Expo, which is the huge annual convention of the, of the publishing industry at the Javits Center. And I wasn't around long, but I was around long enough to, to take in everyone's uh, horror and indignance and outrage over what Amazon is doing, they all think, first to Hachette, one of the big five publishers, but next to the other four, to, to Penguin Random House, um, to all, all the big publishers in succession, which is using its now massive leverage in the book business to extract terms. But the thing that Amazon has done that has a lot of people, including me, very upset is they are negotiating by using the tactic of making books from Hachette, which includes publishers like Little Brown, unavailable or only available with a great delay. So if you go to get one of these books by, say, Malcolm Gladwell or James Patterson, they will actually say on the Amazon page, uh, either three to four week delivery delay, and they actually suggest if you want it sooner, buy it from one of our competitors. That is extraordinary. It's extraordinary because Amazon so prides itself on having the, you know everything available, wonderful customer service. You get it, get it cheaper and faster than you will any anywhere else. Um, but that they have have gone to this point of making the books unavailable. I did notice one of the books under uh, covered by this is. The Everything Store by Brad Stone, which is the book about Jeff Bezos and Amazon that Jeff Bezos's wife has complained about that clearly the Bezos family doesn't like. And originally, that book was unavailable. I happened to check yesterday, and for whatever reason, they are, that book is available on ordinary terms. There was one I checked, which, which suggests there is some political sensitivity there to the idea that this amounts to censorship of things they don't like. But I think the thing that's so extraordinary here... I mean, it's one thing to negotiate aggressively with suppliers and be a big boy like Walmart or Amazon and extract the, the most onerous terms you can. I mean, that's just real-world capitalism and creative destruction and all that. But I do think in the book-selling business, there has to be a somewhat different ethic that applies. I mean, one certainly is that you should what your customers want should be available. But I think when you're, when you're selling books, you are in a way a common carrier in a different way, that you have a kind of ethical obligation, I think, 
to make everything you can as available as you can. If the price has to be higher, the price has to be higher. Maybe they don't wouldn't offer the discount, usual discount on Hachette books. But to take them out of circulation, I have to say, I'm I'm with the publishers on this one. I'm outraged. Kathy? Well, listen, I mean, it's not all the publishers that are outraged. Like, So if you look at Amazon's statement about the Hachette-Amazon problem, um, they, they did to... manage to find one <laughs> <Yes>. small <laughs> publisher right. who wasn't outraged. So I want to address a that. A quizzling publisher. <laughs> I think it is um, a red herring. So I want to make like point out what that p- smallish publisher said well and then distinguish it to the what, what's evil about Amazon. Because I, by the way, am boycotting Amazon. Although Because of this or anyway? Well, it, it, this tipped me over. And I'll talk about that in a second. But um, if you look at that one publisher, he makes the important point that, you know, Smallish publishers had trouble before Amazon came along and getting into the business and getting their books sold. And so what he said that's true about Amazon is that Amazon's good at something, which is creating a platform where there's a lot of access to to it by publishers, by people who want to publish their books. And even people, individuals who want to publish their books can sell their books on Amazon. Um, that's true. But what's bad about it that Amazon also added to this platform is that they're not just a platform. They're also um, just a con- control freaks, something like Steve Jobs I mentioned before, absolute control freaks and, f- and you know, fixated on setting the price of these books and of the services that they, they render. I feel like if instead of cutting off the access to these books, like Amazon has done from Hachet Books, what they should have done was just said, okay, the price is going to be higher. You know, they should have, I mean, in some sense, they should have let capitalism work. And they said, we're a platform. We're going to, we're going to, um, we disagree about how much this should cost. So we're going to let you overprice your books and people won't buy them as much. That's what a true platform would do. That's not what they're doing. So, so Jacob and Kathy agree here that, that Amazon should just stop discounting Hachette books as much as it has done in the past. And that would solve all the problems and everyone would be happy about this. And and I think this this makes a certain amount of conceptual sense. But the first question is, Jacob, do we know what they're disagreeing about? I mean, this seems to be sort of veiled in secrecy. No one knows exactly what the beef is here. We have a guess that it's about it's about the pricing model for ebooks. So the backstory here is about the antitrust case against Apple conspiring with the publishers. To fix the price of ebooks uh, and use what is the um, the uh, agency model, where there's a list price uh, set by the publisher. Amazon doesn't like that. Amazon wants to drive the the price for for whatever reason. Wants to be able to price ebooks as aggressively as it wants to, and it prices them aggressively. And this is one of the weird one of the weird things about the Amazon versus publishers debate is that. Historically, Amazon has sold ebooks for less money than it pays the publishers. Yeah. So the publisher will charge $13 for an ebook and Amazon will sell it for $10 and it will eat the $3 difference. And it will basically just try and pay all of us to read ebooks because it wants us to get into the habit of reading ebooks because the more people are in the habit of reading ebooks, the more valuable Amazon becomes. Yeah. Um, in terms of the amount of money that the publishers get, in terms of the amount of money that authors get, they actually get more money than Amazon is getting for these ebooks. And I guess that what's happening now is Amazon is saying, well, this can't go on forever. We want to be able to pay you less. And this is, and that's the point at which Hachette and the authors are saying, well, listen, if you want to just throw money at us, then that's one thing. But if you want us to 
accept that lower price, no way. And I think if Amazon had been a little smarter in going at this, it actually would have tried to pit the authors against their publishers. Because essentially what Amazon is saying is is ebooks should be a lot cheaper. And they're certainly right about that. I mean, originally publishers wanted ebooks to cost the same as printed books, which is absurd. I mean, there's no distribution, there's no printing, you know, there are hard costs that aren't there. But anyway, Amazon's right, books should be cheap. But if 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 what they're trying to do is push the prices down, there is a set amount of money divided by the publisher and the writer and the agent. And the uh authors are arguably not getting enough of that. The publishers are adding a lot of cost, and there's a question about how much value they add. They're getting by far the lion's share of the payment from from the bookseller. So, you know, I think Amazon, if it had been a little cannier, should say, wait a minute, the bad guys here and keeping these prices up are the publishers who should be passing more of the revenue we provide onto the writers and creators. Similar things happen in the music industry that we were talking about before with the music labels and whether the artists get a reasonable amount of money. So we have this interesting distinction between music and publishing, where in music, the artists never really liked the record labels. And in publishing, the authors are nearly entirely siding with the publishers. Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but enough about Amazon and Hachette. <laughs> we, we must move on because we have a French rock star to talk about. <laughs> this is the segue, people. Rock star, you know. <laughs> They're getting worse. I apologize for that. Thomas Piketty, the well, New York Times, not just best-selling author, but number one best-selling author for a 700-page book about economics, which is pretty impressive. Chris Giles at the Financial Times, decided he was going to come at Piketty. What happened, Cathy? I'm so glad you pronounced his name. I wasn't sure if it was Giles or Giles. Um, well, listen, he came out last Friday with a Financial Times article basically um, saying that Piketty, I'm going to say it wrong, um, made some mistakes with his adding up on his Excel sheet. <laughs> And the, the sad truth is that Piketty actually did use Excel. Uh, that's, that disappointed me. Um, um, given, given that I'm a data journalist teaching people to use tools besides Excel. Um, but the idea that they, that Piketty made the same kind of mistake as Reinhard Rogoff did in their A famous, little bit of background. Yes, there were please. more famous economists. And before Thomas Piketty came along as the rock star economist du jour, it was this other economists called Carmen Reinhardt and, and Ken Rogoff, who had all manner of data about how when a country has a debt-to-GDP ratio of more than 90%, suddenly things go very, very bad. And then it turned out that all of the Excel analysis they were using to come to this conclusion was deeply flawed because they typed the wrong numbers into their Excel spreadsheet. This is essentially what Chris Giles was accusing Piketty of doing as well. Right. And it's it's absolutely not not analogous. I mean, first of all, the Reinhard Rogoff was um, a blatant mistake, and the second of all, they kept it close to, close to themselves, but exploited their false findings for political ends and to sort of declare austerity as the only thing we could do in this country. They certainly didn't publish their Excel spreadsheet on the internet for everyone to see. That's right, and Piketty did. Piketty also has way more data, way more decisions to make about how the data gets analyzed. And, you know, as a data nerd myself, I'm very, I'm very actually pleased to see this debate because this is actually the best you can hope for. 
when you're talking about such a massive amount of data being collected, mm. um, Piketty did absolutely the most transparent thing he could. He explained it. He had a bunch of uh, technical ex- explanations. He put all his data on the web. For someone to come along and say, you made mistakes, and then Piketty, by the way, responded a couple of days ago with his uh, with 4,400 words response explaining that the mistakes weren't that bad. And, in and they fact, weren't even mistakes. And they weren't mistakes. They were issues uh, that he made decisions that here's how, here's, you know, he pointed to the to explanations of those decisions. Um, but the point is that, you know, there really isn't any right answer in any data analysis. There's, there's lots of different decisions you make. Um, one way of thinking about that is um, you could take a bunch of different decisions and try them all out and see whether the end result, which is Piketty's end conclusion, being that the inequality is rising, is that a robust conclusion? In other words, if you made a bunch of different first choices, um, do you get to the same conclusion? And the overwhelming evidence is that inequality is rising. And you know, No matter which way you slice the data. Right. Yeah. And it, to, just to be a super nerd for a second, in a lot of people think about this as a Bayesian sort of assumption, like use your Bayesian um, belief system. So you, to some extent, you believe that inequality is rising. And then every time you see another study that comes out saying, yes, inequality is rising, your belief in that gets stronger. And Piketty's analysis is a very large data point for that, but it's not the last data point. And the conversation about how you made those decisions and could you come to different conclusions is in- incredibly important to this entire science, and in particular to this idea that people um, have of whether there's one right answer. It's almost never one right answer, but there is a, a more robust answer. There is a real lesson here about Bayesian priors in terms of the reaction to the FTPs, that the people who didn't like Piketty's book jumped on it gleefully, and mostly now, Jacob, have egg on their faces, no? I have to say, just watching this from the sidelines, not as a data nerd, but as someone who enjoys this this kind of, of scrum, I think Piketty won, hands down. Oh, absolutely. Because uh, essentially, in his response, he said, Chris Giles, not, the thing that you accuse me of using this discontinuous data, I did not do it. However, you did do it, and, you're, and, he, and he supported that quite quite strongly. And then he pointed directly to the absurd conclusion that flows from Giles' argument as opposed to the reasonable, plausible one that f- follows from his. He said, you know, Giles, if you were right, it would be not only is Britain not getting more unequal, but in fact, it is now more equal than Sweden. In fact, it's now more equal than Sweden was in the 1980s or the 1970s. And, you know, it's just there is some, I, I don't come with any strong Bayesian or other kind of priors to this argument. I'm just very interested in it. But it seems to me that Piketty has has described analytically something that we know to be happening in some way. And the issue here wasn't whether he was fundamentally wrong. It's whether he maybe was exaggerating it in, in use, using his data. And I don't the, think there's any strong case that he did. Th- fact, there's no strong case. And I think the big confusion here comes from the fact that Piketty is on the left politically and, more importantly, has been embraced by the left politically And what Giles accused him of doing was deliberately fudging his numbers to make the situation of the world seem worse than maybe it actually was. And what Giles, I think, misses is that Piketty, for whatever his political beliefs, is at heart probably 
the most robust empirical economist working in the world today. He is the first three chapters of his book are entirely empirical. There's no policy prescriptions. There's no ideology in there virtually at all. And Giles is treating his empirical masterwork as though it's some kind of polemical masterwork, which it's really not a very polemical book at all. Right. I, definitely, Gerald's had the polemical on his side. Not uh, He can't accuse uh, Piketty of being like that. Um, and I, again, I think you just have to remember that as good as it gets is when you're actually talking about data, when you're actually saying, um, I have a different approach to statistical analysis for this data set. And m- this is what I consider valid data set. That's an- another thing that Piketty mentioned is that, you know, he cherry picked this self-reported wealth estimate of the of UK in 2010. And he also ignored um, Asaya Zuckman 2014 report, which made <laughs> All it right, look we're like... In other words, there was, a, there was a report that came out after um, Piketty finished his book, but before it came out, um, which basically made it look like Piketty had underestimated wealth disparity in the UK. And that seemed to be a much more reliable data source than the the one that Giles was Well, I, I can I can tell you that all you really need to do to understand wealth disparity in the UK, you, you can look at survey data or wealth data or tax estate data, estate tax data, but you just need to go to London and look at the way that it's been hollowed out by the fact that all of central London has been bought up by various billionaires who never lived there. And, you know, and that's a, such an important point, and it, it's namely, and this is addressed by Piketty on his on his rebuttal. One of the reasons we don't have better wealth data is because rich people hide their wealth. We should be asking, the real result of this debate should be, let's get better wealth data. I was going to say the only thing you need to do is read the FT's How to Spend It (laughs) supplement, which is a grotesque uh, display of the the way they imagine the, the richest oligarchs in London live. And it's like... What Piketty doesn't do in terms of actually illustrating the phenomenon that he supports with data. It's true. The, the, the FD How to Spend It supplement is, is kind of the most astonishing wealth porn we're likely to see. It's going to go down in history as emblematic of something. <laughs> but on, on which note, we are going to ask Jacob Weisberg as the special guest here to start the lightning numbers round with one of one of my favorite data points from the past week. Jacob, what did you find in the Wall Street Journal? Well, Felix, you, What's told, your number? you told me to bring a number, and the number I brought is five out of seven. And five out of seven is the number of top CEO, top-paid CEOs, according to the Wall Street Journal's new 2014 data uh, survey, who are in the media business. And this is quite striking. The, the people who are being paid the most to run companies in America are, for the most part, not running Google and Microsoft and Apple or not running the big industrial companies, GE, GM. They are running things like CBS and Walt Disney and Time Warner. And the, the Les Moonves is the top uh, media executive. He has paid $65 million last year, um, and most of it actually in cash. Uh, and so on down the line. Compared to Jamie Dimon got, what, 13, something like that? He doesn't make, he's not near the top 10. I mean, the top 10 bottoms out at $28 million. And Lloyd Blankfein is not, the head of Goldman Sachs is not on the list, although I think other years he would have been. So, Jacob, explain to me, why is it that in this 
age where the internet is supposedly disrupting every single media business we can think of, that media CEOs are taking home $60 million a year. Well, as far as I can tell, it's it's some form of collective madness. I mean, the one thing we know is, is that media CEOs have been particularly poor stewards of shareholder value over a, a longer period of time. But as far as I can judge, and maybe you have another view on this, Felix, it's because they have an unusual degree of power over their own compensation. Um, so in the cases of some of these people, uh, f- uh, for example, um, two of the top people are at Viacom. And so there is one person. Well, some- Philippe, well, I mean, I was about to say that Philippe Doman at Viacom, who's notoriously just bringing in an insane amount of money for himself, his compensation is just set by whatever Sumner Redstone wants to pay him, right? And the same for Les Moonves at C- CBS, presumably. So, you know, at that point, they have no control. You know, it's up to the whim of a billionaire. But maybe billionaires just don't think it's such a big deal to pay someone $50 million a year. I think it's very hard to judge performance. And I think they have a very passive boards if they, in fact, have any boards involved in determining their com- compensation. And uh, they, have, they have convinced the key people that they are invaluable. Which is, a, which is a low as a low paid media executive is uh, is my goal, but I haven't succeeded in doing it at that level. <laughs> your, your problem is that Don Graham isn't as rich as Sumner Redstone. <laughs> He's also a little more value conscious. <laughs> Kathy, what's your number? My number is one hundred and twenty. That's the number of fake papers, um, fa- fake academic papers discovered by an algorithm which sets out to find fake academic papers. Um, that were published by Springer and the IEEE Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers on their subscription services. But they were mostly conference proceedings and they were mostly by so-called Chinese authors. Um, Some of the authors are real people and have no idea that they were being published under some fake paper. So just to give a little background, there's actually an algorithm that's a couple years old that creates fake papers. Just And the idea was just to point out, just to poke on the sort of ludicrous kinds of things that happen in academic publishing. So they would uh, – somebody made this – I'm sure there's more than one by now. Somebody made this algorithm that would create a paper and then they would submit it and see if it got accepted. Well, it turns out that a lot of people do this for fun now and now they've, they've started to fight back. I love the story of fake papers, and and I love the story that most published research findings are false as well, which is which is a robust finding a in science. Yeah. That's a real paper, About and it's one, one of the best yeah. one of the best papers in in the literature. I am going to finish the numbers round with. I'm going to drag us kicking and screaming into the real world here. My number is minus one, um, which is. The first quarter GDP figure, which came out this week, the U.S. economy actually shrank by 1%. Now, it is very rare for economies to shrink. Um, When they do, it's normally because they're in recession. And to a certain degree, if you shrink into consecutive quarters, that's the definition of a recession. But what that says to us is that the economy is not in great shape and people will blame the weather and people will talk about technical factors, about inventories. But... The big picture here is that for all that the rich are getting richer and Amazon is making all of its big deals and Amazon's shareholders are doing very well for themselves, the broader economy is still really going 
kind of nowhere. And I find that a little bit depressing. And I just want to say, going back to me boycotting Amazon, I'm boycotting Amazon mostly for the way they treat their workers, which is a nationwide problem. We look at Walmart, you look at Amazon, and it's just, it's not getting better. The paternalism that we used to see in the age of Ford when he would pay his workers $5 a day because he wanted them to be able to afford cars, that kind of idea that we need to we need labor to be paid well in order for capital to have a market just doesn't doesn't seem to exist anymore. But won't the uh, the second quarter is going to be twice as high? I mean, how much of this do you th- yes. think really, Felix, is just seasonal variation? The, well, you're right. There, there's going to be a mean reversion. So the, the, if, if the overall economy is growing at 2% and we had minus 1% in the first quarter and then we'll have 3.5% in the second quarter and it will average out over, over the first half of the year. As I say, there were seasonal factors, weather, that we had a very hard winter. Um, and then there's all of these things about inventories and stuff, which will help boost second quarter GDP as well. So don't worry that we're in recession. We're not. But still, the fact that you know, the United States economy does not shrink very often. It's, it's done it, you know, maybe 10 times since the war. So when it happens, it's kind of worth at least notice, noticing. I, I just wanted to make you say inventories again. <laughs> Thank you. <by> <laughs> Thanks. So on which note, we have come to an end of this edition of Slate Money. Thank you again, Jacob, for joining us. Come back anytime. It's fantastic to have you here. Thank you. Please subscribe to Slate Money in any podcast app, Stitcher or SoundCloud or TuneIn or, of course, iTunes, where you can leave us a review. That would help spread the word about this new show. Write to us as well with your comments and complaints and requests at slatemoney at slate.com. The producers for Slate Money are Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of all of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jacob Weisberg, I'm Felix Salmon, and we'll talk to you next week once again on Slate Money. <laughs>